dear listeners, welcome to European Talks. My name is Trahina Subotic and I will be your host for today. Today we're discussing a really important topic. It is the re-emergence of the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan over the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Just for brief explanation for the sake of our listeners, Nagorno-Karabakh is officially recognized as a territory of, uh, internationally recognized as a territory of Azerbaijan. On the other hand, it is populated mostly by Armenians who are making claims for self-determination. And uh, this is one of the key disputes that lasts in the region ever since the war ended in 1994. There have been uh, occasional clashes between the two sides, but uh, it appears that these clashes, which have started five days ago, have been the bloodiest so far. So in order to have a full picture of the existing situation, we invited two prominent experts, one from Armenia and the other one from Azerbaijan, to discuss the ongoing issue. I have the pleasure on the one hand to introduce Mr. Benjamin Pogosyan, who is the chairman of the Center for Political and Economic Strategic Studies in Yerevan. He is also former director of the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the Armenian Ministry of Defense. And finally, he graduated the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy in the US. On the other hand, I have pleasure to introduce Mr. Anar Jahangirli, who is currently a consultant in public affairs and communication. He, uh, he is a former diplomat from Azerbaijan with the focus also on Nagorno-Karabakh. And also finally, he graduated the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. My dear guests, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you, thank you for having us. Thank you. It's really my pleasure and I hope this uh, discussion will be really fruitful. Uh, I would like just to touch upon on the historical background. We don't have too much time. Uh, just for the sake of our listeners, as I mentioned before, the war ended between Armenia and Azerbaijan in 1994. There have been occasional clashes regarding Nagorno-Karabakh and surrounding uh, regions. And to this day, we haven't seen so, such big clashes and uh, bloody uh, casualties uh, in this region. Uh, on the one hand, Armenia claims that it was Baku who started shelling civilians in Nagorno-Karabakh with artillery and uh, air, air forces. On the other hand, our, uh, Baku defends its decision by saying this is only a counter-defensive uh, mechanism as it's only uh, responding to uh, other sides' provocations. So I would like to maybe start with uh, Mr. Uh, Bogosian. Maybe we can use the first names to make the conversation easier. So Benjamin, I would like to ask you, what's your take on this situation, particularly as both sides are making contradictory claims? Uh, again, thanks for the invitation, and I would like to welcome all the listeners for the podcast. So, regarding the current situation, on September 27th, Azerbaijani launched the attack against Nagorno-Karabakh. Unfortunately, within the last four years, this is the second attempt by Azerbaijan to stop the peace negotiations and to seek to solve the problem by the force. We have the large escalation also in April 2016. Of course, this time situation is much harsher because Azerbaijan uses much more manpower and firepower and arm power than in April 2016. And my understanding is that simply Azerbaijan maybe is frustrated by negotiations or maybe Azerbaijan thinks that he has uh, advantage on Armenia or Nagorno-Karabakh Republic and he is able to solve the problem mm -hmm. by the arms. But definitely all actors involved, except Turkey, all actors involved in this problem, 
OSCE Minsk Group co-chairs, Russia, United States, France, who just uh, three hours ago made a statement. They all stated that this problem can be solved only through the negotiations. No armed solutions is possible. And also they called to all parties to stop the hostilities. Mm -hmm. And definitely Armenia is ready to do that. If I can ask you just a follow-up question, why would Azerbaijan be uh, frustrated by negotiations? Uh, my understanding is that uh, they want to come back to the situation of 1988, which is a little bit strange because in 1988 we have the Soviet Union. There is no Soviet Union, but they want to come back to the situation of 1988. This is, of course, not possible, and they are frustrated. This is my guess that through the negotiations, they are not able to force Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh Republic to come back to the situation of 1988. For the sake of our listeners, what was in 1988? In 1988, Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Region was a part of Soviet Azerbaijan. Okay, thank you. Uh, Anar, what's your take on this? Thank you. Thank you for having us. And it's, uh, I'd like to greet everyone listening to your podcast. And uh, it's a very interesting times and we are in a uh, and uncharted territories and it's, it's a very tough spot to be at this moment of life at this moment of history um, it, it is very difficult to uh, uh, analyze a, a complex problem like Nagorno-Karabakh in, in a very short period of time but um, we um, uh, well, we, sh we should pr probably look at the uh, when my colleague from uh, Armenia says about coming back to the situation of 1988, I don't think Azerbaijan wants to come back to uh, to the situation when the USSR existed. Uh, uh, Azerbaijan, uh, just like Armenia, became independent in 1991 and were recognized by the world community within the administrative borders that they had uh, while they were part of the USSR. And uh, Azerbaijan was admitted to the United Nations within those territories, uh, which includes Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Region and seven adjacent districts, which are uh, not part of, uh, which have never been part of um, Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Region and where almost no Armenians lived ever. Uh, right now, we are in the situation when the, uh, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, both countries became independent, and uh, the conflict between them became an international conflict. Mm -hmm. So Armenia and Azerbaijan engaged in military hostilities against each other, and uh, until uh, uh, the year uh, the 1994, when we agreed on the ceasefire, um, uh, Armenia managed to capture, um, to uh, maintain its, its control over Nagorno-Karabakh and capture seven adjacent districts that we were talking about. Uh, since 1994, we uh, were having negotiations uh, uh, with this group. Uh, so the Minsk group comprised of more states than we hear which we hear the names of. So we mostly hear the names of Russia, the US, and uh, France. Uh, so they are the co-chairs of the Minsk group. So they are, what they're doing, they're uh, visiting the region. They have been visiting the region. Okay. And meeting, 
uh, heads of uh, governments for uh, collecting their feedback and coming back with proposals. Since, since 1994, Azerbaijan declared its commitment to peace and uh, we are in 2020, it's 26 years past, nothing okay. happened. And we are in a situation where Azerbaijan has, still has its uh, territories under the occupation. And I believe um, there is every, uh, Azerbaijan has every right to defend its uh, territorial integrity. Just a follow-up question. I think it was yesterday that the United Nations Security Council adopted a resolution calling both sides to stop fighting and to cease war. How is it uh, resonating in Baku and among uh, Azerbaijani citizens? Will they accept this resolution? Uh, it resonates very well in Azerbaijan, as the uh, four other resolutions of the United Nations Security Council since 1993, where uh, it explicitly mentions Nagorno-Karabakh region of Azerbaijan Republic, um, uh, which confirms uh, uh, the uh, uh, Nagorno-Karabakh being part of Azerbaijan, according okay. to international <clears throat> law. And Azerbaijan is committed to United Nations principles and calls for uh, the cessation of hostilities based on the, uh, and coming back to the negotiations to solve the conflict based on the principles and norms of international law. So is it ready to stand down as we see that Armenia also uh, is planning to, or is it planning to stand down? Are both sides, what, what does it take for both sides to stand down? I would like to ask you, Anna, really shortly then, Benjamin. Sure, uh, I believe it, uh, it's, uh, it's in both sides' interests to come back to negotiation table. Uh, and uh, when the time permits and when the uh, parties agree up on, on that, uh, because when you start, the, uh, w w when, there is a, when there is a war, it, it's never easy to stop it. Uh, so the, the, the parties have to agree on basic principles, how to stop it and then move forward. So I believe both sides would uh, be interested to stop the war because that's not uh, in the long term that's not the solution uh, to the conflict neither okay. Armenians nor Azerbaijanis are going to leave Caucasus we're going to live side by side but we have to live uh, side by side uh, with the um, with respect uh, to dignity of each other. Benjamin? Yes uh, as I mentioned the recent war has been launched by Azerbaijan so it's Azerbaijani decision to stop the war we are simply uh, defending ourselves and we cannot stop defending as far as Azerbaijan is going to attack us. So in this time, a decision should be made by Azerbaijan. If they stop the hostilities, hostilities will be stopped. If they continue the hostilities, Armenian side cannot not to defend. When you say we are defending ourselves, do you mean Armenia as a country or Armenians as a population? As far as I know, uh, Azerbaijan hasn't attacked Arme Armenia. Uh, when, we're, when I'm saying we, I mean Republic of Armenia and also Republic of Nagorno-Karabakh. Uh, as you know, Armenia is officially the guarantor of security of Nagorno-Karabakh Republic. So it's uh, Armenia and Nagorno-Karabakh Republic. And regarding the taking Armenia, unfortunately, yesterday and the day before yesterday, they also were direct attacks and bombing of internationally recognized territory of Republic of Armenia. So hostilities are not only against Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, but hostilities are also against Republic of Armenia. Uh, let me just uh, interject here that the... Uh, Please do, briefly. Yeah, so that the uh, op military operations uh, from the Azerbaijani side 
uh, is a response to Armenian provocation and uh, to uh, escalate the conflict. And uh, Azerbaijan at this moment sees no other uh, way out of the situation other than uh, the withdrawal of Armenian forces from the occupied regions. Uh, and uh, after that, it's possible to stop the hostilities. It is complicated because the two sides continue accusing each other. And there was a, the European Association of Journalists who actually uh, claimed that there is an open information warfare happening in the Caucasus, where the two sides continuously blame each other, but also by using fake news. So I do agree it is maybe difficult to conclude who did the first move but maybe we should focus on what can be done in the following period. And my question for Benjamin is, um, the Caucasus has always been uh, on the crossroads between uh, uh, large powers. Uh, on the north, we have Russia. On the south, uh, we have Iran. On the west, we have uh, Turkey. So my question to you is, uh, does peace depend on these foreign powers, major powers in the, in the region? And uh, if you can particularly tell us more about uh, Russia's involvement with Armenia and its support, because so far we've seen that Russia is trying to balance the interests between the two sides. But it is interesting to see how Russia will play its card, considering that Armenia is not only a member of the Eurasian Economic Union, but it is also a member of the Collective Security Treaty Organization led by Russia. So please let us know what's your take on this. So first of all, of course, external actors, um, especially Russia, of course, has a role in peace process. But I do not agree that everything depends on them. Because Armenia, Nagorno-Karabakh Republic and Azerbaijan, they have their agencies. And of course, also, peace depends on them. I do not agree that everything depends on external actors. Mm -hmm. And Armenia, Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh Republic has nothing to do here. Regarding Russia's position in this conflict, Yes, you mentioned that Armenia is a strategic ally of Russia. We have Russian military base deployed in Armenia. And uh, Armenia is a member of collective security treaty organization and Eurasian Economic Union. But also Russia is interested to have its influence in all South Caucasus because Russia views South Caucasus as a part of former Soviet space, which Russia admits or perceives it as a part of its, if not a zone of sphere of influence or zone of influence, but at least Russia believes that this is a zone of its privileged interests. So Russia wants to have influence in all other South Caucasus. Mm -hmm. And definitely Azerbaijan also is a significant state in the South Caucasus. Yes, and if you take into account the current hostilities, Russia seeks to keep a balance. We see the conversations between the Russian foreign minister with its Azerbaijan and Armenian counterparts. And also Russia is actively calling for cease of hostilities. And as I mentioned, we just a few hours ago have a joint statement by president of Minsk group co-chair countries, Russia, France, and the United States. But my understanding is that also Russia is not interested in the growing role of, growing role of Turkey in South Caucasus. Okay. But we see that, especially in recent escalation, Turkey is fully involved here, both with Turkish military, with Turkish instructors, and also we just hear official statements from France President Macron and also from Russian Foreign Ministry that Turkey sent hundreds, if not thousands, mercenaries from Syria and Libya to the conflict zone. 
So my understanding is that Russia is definitely not interested in growing the role of Turkey here. But yes, also he seeks to keep a balance because he wants to have influence in all South Caucasus and not only in Armenia. But my understanding is that if Turkey's involvement in the conflict will grow, uh, if Turkey or Azerbaijan will directly attack, I'm speaking about large-scale attacks, okay. not like uh, bombardments which we saw <coughs> yesterday or the day uh, before yesterday. If there will be direct military or large-scale attack either by Azerbaijan or by Turkey against Armenia, definitely Russia will implement its security guarantees, both bilateral and also multilateral within collective security treaty organization. Thank you. As you mentioned, Turkey, we can see that not always Russian and Turkish interests are compatible. So, Anar, what's your take on this? Do you think they're on the opposite sides in this conflict, or can, can the bridge be built between these two sides and maybe avoid any proxy wars in the region? Uh, before going to that part, I'd like to address one uh, question uh, here, one point here. That's about the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, so-called republic. Uh, it really reminds me the, the toddlers calling the imaginary friends when they don't exist, but they think that they do exist, but everyone else knows that they are they don't. So uh, we uh, uh, when we talk, we can talk about Nagorno-Karabakh people, Armenians living there, which are citizens of Azerbaijan, and their property, their security, their places of worship must be respected and will be respected by Azerbaijan. But uh, when we're talking about the illegal regime uh, installed there by Armenia, it's, uh, it's nothing more than an um, okay. imaginary, imaginary entity. Going Can you tell us now more about the geopolitics? Going back, to your, going back to your question about uh, Turkey and Russia's interests in the region. Uh, well, there's, it's no secret that Turkey um, uh, is involved in the region in, in, in the large transport and energy projects. Um, uh, Turkey has been one of the first investors in the region, in Georgia in, and in Azerbaijan. Uh, we have very close partnerships in, in terms of the uh, political, uh, social and economic levels with Turkey. Um, uh, and it's no secret that uh, Azerbaijan has military cooperation with Turkey. It's, it's, it's widely known, uh, uh, but we have never had, and uh, in, this, uh, um, in this particular instance that, that the hostilities, there's no, there are no Turkish uh, fighters, there are no Turkish uh, soldiers uh, fighting on the side of Azerbaijan not to say um, uh, about uh, the mercenaries. Um, Azerbaijan has a big army uh, equipped uh, well. Uh, the population, uh, the sheer the demography tells us that a 10 million population, um, having its uh, army of more than 100,000 active uh, army members, it does not need a couple of hundred mercenaries um, and uh, <clears throat> risk its reputation by bringing them to the battlefield and really um, uh, undermine its own credibility. But so excuse it, me, how do you explain the fact that some Western media even, even, even uh, covered the issue and mentioned that there are some Turkish-backed uh, fighters even from Syria? Uh, I am familiar with those reports and all of them is based on he said, she said. There's no uh, concrete evidence uh, of a captured or dog ta uh, tags of, of any fighters uh, or any 
uh, killed uh, or anyone who was actually being there. Again, it, uh, if, it, if it's the case, and I'm telling you from this show, I'll be the first one to call it, and uh, I'll be the first one to, uh, to mention that, that it, it has been the case. But up to date, they, uh, those who claim that failed to produce any uh, credible evidence. It's all based on reports that uh, someone interviewed someone in Syria saying that, again, some other people, some imaginary people came and tried okay. to recruit people. Okay, uh, but and there's no evidence. There's no, uh, there's no evidence that uh, any fighter uh, or any mercenary actually is, has been present on the battleground. Okay. Benjamin, did you read the same reports? Do you have the same impression this is all hearsay? No, because uh, this not only media report, as I mentioned today, the president of France, and definitely you cannot say that Mr. Macron is a media journalist, the president of France, and also the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Russian Federation, officially made statements that they have clear evidences that Turkey deployed hundreds, if not thousands, mercenaries from Syria and Libya. And I fully agree that definitely this is against Azerbaijan interests. But I believe that this is show how much influence Turkey has on Azerbaijan. And this is show how Azerbaijani foreign and security policy has been captured by Turkey. But as you mentioned now, Turkey, uh, as far as I know, the Armenian and Turkish border is closed, right? Armenia, Turkey closed its borders with Armenia in 1994 and still border is closed. But uh, how, 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 is, how are Erdogan's statements, for example, support towards uh, uh, Baku perceived in Yerevan? Do they see, see it as a security threat? And what are the expectations over there? Definitely in Armenia, the statements of President Erdogan supporting Azerbaijan, and President Erdogan is the only international actor or international leader who even today in his speech in Parliament stated that no ceasefire hostilities should go on. And it's a little bit strange to hear such things from the president of country who is calling, openly calling for continuation of the war. And given the fact that Turkey also continues to denounce the Armenian genocide, definitely these statements and fully support of Azerbaijan, including arms sales and also mercenaries, is deployed very negatively in Armenia. And we believe that this is a continuation of Turkey's foreign policy to, to destabilize several regions in the Middle East, in Libya, in Eastern Mediterranean. So in Armenia, we see all this as a continuation of President Erdogan's policy to assertive policy to increase Turkey's role and maybe to recreate in some form the old Ottoman Empire. Now we I'd like, I'd like, I'd like to refer briefly to but the- please, uh, please do in 10 seconds if possible. Yeah, well, uh, uh, it won't be in 10 seconds, maybe in 20, but- Okay. Uh, what, uh, uh, what, what you are referring to as the statements from the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Russia and, uh, and uh, France. So Minister of Foreign Affairs of Russia didn't name anyone. Uh, we suppose, we, we think they, they actually meant um, uh, the Lebanese fighters who are fighting from the Armenian side, uh, who are well documented their arrival to fight in Armenia. Uh, and on the, uh, on the on, 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 uh, uh, French, uh, statement. I believe. Uh, well, it's politics. There's a there's a huge Armenian lobby in in in, in France, and they are uh, exerting their pressure on on uh, Macron to okay. say those words. 
As we mentioned France now, I would like to touch upon uh, one of the key aspects of this conversation, that is the role of Europe, the role of the EU, not only of the member states. For example, uh, with Azerbaijan, uh, um, the EU con considers it to be uh, one of the key energy partners, strategic partner. Uh, uh, they are also negotiating new framework for political and economic relations. Can you, and, and also Azerbaijan is uh, alongside Armenia, a member of the Eastern Partnership. Can you tell us what has been the role of the EU uh, when it comes to the development of relations with Azerbaijan, but also when it comes to its response to this conflict? And later on, Benjamin, Benjamin I'll ask you the same question. Uh, yeah, uh, gladly, uh, since I also uh, uh, worked in Brussels for a number of years as the, uh, with the European Union and European Commission. So the European Union strategy since uh, uh, the conflict started was uh, uh, concentrated on uh, helping both sides to, um, to, uh, for rehabilitation of, um, of, of the uh, war-affected territories and also refugees and internal okay. displaced people. Uh, as you know, Azerbaijan had uh, like uh, about, uh, about a million uh, refugees and IDPs combined, um, those who had to flee their lands uh, around, uh, in and around the Gorno-Karabakh region. So EU has been helping with those efforts to both Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, and you had a special representative for South Caucasus who had been traveling to region um, just to, uh, I would call it just to be in touch uh, without exerting any or without uh, conveying any, any real message uh, in terms of the solution of the conflict or bringing the parties okay. together. So EU has been a very passive actor uh, in this respect, uh, whereas the uh, several EU member states like uh, the UK, Germany or France, they've been very vocal uh, on uh, about the solution of the conflict uh, on different aspects of it. So uh, I would say EU's role uh, is, uh, would be welcomed uh, in the region, uh, especially okay. because the, EU, EU, the European Union is, um, is an actor which respects uh, the international law and principles of national law uh, and uh, involvement of EU from that point of view is very much welcomed uh, in Azerbaijan. Benjamin, now the floor to you. How would you comment on the uh, EU's role when it comes to addressing this uh, conflict? And also we need to know that uh, EU and Armenia have been developing partnership. They have developed partnership in 2017, a comprehensive partnership. And the number of uh, grants and donations have started to increase since the uh, change of government in Armenia two years ago. So how would you comment uh, on this aspect uh, when it comes to the EU? First of all, Armenia really values its relations with the European Union and is part of Armenian balanced foreign policy to develop relations not only with Russia, but also other actors involved in the region including EU, we are also developing relations with NATO and the United States. Okay. Yes, as you mentioned, in 2017, Armenia signed a comprehensive and enhanced partnership agreement with the European Union, which came into force in 2018, approximately by 80%, and we are waiting for the ratification of agreement for all 27 EU member states for okay. this agreement to come fully into force. But yes, uh, we uh, really appreciate EU support for Armenia, especially 
not only after 2018 or after April-May Velvet Revolution of 2018, but also before the revolution, the EU was one of the key supporters of Armenia. I mean, technical support, grants, capacity building, okay. or supporting reforms in several sectors. And this process is continuing. And uh, just uh, recently, EU provided 30 million euros for Armenia for overcoming the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm -hmm problems and another 30 million euros to make uh, judicial reforms in Armenia. Regarding the European Union involvement in Karabakh conflict, there is a no direct EU involvement. We have simply several EU member states, which are the members of Minsk group. As I mentioned, France is one of the co-chairs. Germany also is a member of this Minsk group, along with other fun EU member states. But EU as an organization is not directly involved here, and EU uh, mainly supports the efforts of Minsk Group co-chairs. But the key here is that EU also strongly believe that there is no military solution to this conflict, that the conflict should be solved through negotiations. Definitely, negotiations is a difficult thing, but it's much more better to have the war than another war and then <coughs> another war. So EU position is clear, and this position is welcomed by Armenia, that no military solution is possible, and conflict should be solved through negotiations. Okay, thank you very uh, much. We'll continue discussion. Just, just uh, let me just uh, wrap up a little bit. We're running out of time. Just last question uh, for both of you. Anar, we can start with you. We did uh, touch upon the role of the EU. It has been developing partnerships in the Caucasus region and has inv made investments, grants, and uh, loans. But I would like to maybe look forward. How can we maybe make uh, what, if you had a chance to talk to European officials, what would be your advice? What sh should the EU do to maybe become a more active player? And uh, what can it do? Can it contribute? Is there a European solution to, to this issue? Not only to de-escalate the conflict, but also to find a sustainable and long-term peace agreement. Uh, definitely. Uh, uh, there is a European solution to the conflict. But uh, unfortunately, we are we're a bit far away from Europe, uh, although we consider ourselves part of Europe, but we're farther away. Uh, so, uh, well, uh, I wish our energy and our time would have spent on bringing innovation, science and technology okay. to the region and, uh, and bring prosperity to the people of the region. And uh, the EU would that's definitely that potential to do that but uh, again um, it, it will it, it will be possible only after this uh, final solution of the conflict which will uh, to to uh, it doesn't have to be uh, the uh, to the advantage of one or another but it has okay. to be a mutually accepted agreement by both sides so um, uh, 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 for us it means, I will say it in very short uh, statement, for Azerbaijan it means Azerbaijan's territorial integrity with very high uh, level of autonomy for Armenians of Karabakh guaranteed by, by, the, uh, by the European Union and by the world powers so that they enjoy their, uh, their, their language, their, their, uh, they enjoy their rights to uh, um, uh, cultural rights and political rights within that territory. But it has to be within the territorial integrity of Azerbaijan. Benjamin, your take? Do you think yes. uh, the EU yes. has a role to play in the future? Just a very small uh, remark. 
for Nagorno-Karabakh Republic Armenians, it's very difficult to believe that they can live in peace and prosperity under the jurisdiction of Azerbaijan, given that just now Azerbaijan is shelling the villages and cities of Nagorno-Karabakh uh, Republic starting from September 27, and another war has been waged in April 2016, so it's really very, very difficult for them to believe this. Regarding what can EU do, my understanding is that first of all, EU should support the modernization process of all three republics in South Caucasus, and especially in Armenia and Azerbaijan. I mean modernization, capacity building, and by doing this, my understanding is that in a long-term perspective, European Union could bring also peace to this region or make the peace more tangible and touchable in this region by supporting modernization, by supporting reforms, and by bringing uh, rule of law and good governance to all three republics of South Caucasus. Um, thank you. I mean, the issues you mentioned and the role that EU can play, uh, I can, I, if I can touch upon maybe my region, the Western Balkans, we also always say that the EU is actually welcomed and that its role in terms of scientific development, innovations, uh, investment, it, it can be really beneficial. And uh, we also here think that the EU can play a bigger role and we as civil society always uh, make calls and make the recommendations for the EU. But I would also maybe like, like to touch upon the Western Balkans and um, Caucasus parallels just to end this conversation, this podcast. Uh, I have many friends uh, both in Armenia and in Azerbaijan and of course I talk to them about uh, this conflict. On the one hand, uh, some of my Azerbaijani friends tell me that uh, Serbia should maybe focus more on the principle of territorial integrity as it has issue uh, to re retain Kosovo as part of its uh, uh, territorial integrity. On the other hand, some of my Armenian friends tell me that Serbia should maybe focus more on the principle of uh, self-determination, uh, particularly as there are uh, Serbs or even Croats in Bosnia who are actually vocal about it. So my question for both of you is, as we in Balkans know how politics can be complicated, and we know that the principle of territorial integrity and for the principle of self-determination are both um, sometimes uh, hard to reconcile. Do you think, do you think that these principles can be reconciled? And do you see something this way, any parallels for the Balkans and the, and the Caucasus region? The final, so final floor goes to Anar, then to Benjamin. Well, it's a, probably a never-ending discussion, but I mean, we uh, we believe uh, it is possible to reconcile those uh, principles, especially because uh, given the fact that the uh, in international law, uh, the term uh, self-determination um, uh, is has been uh, they started to use that term more in the in the context of decolonization. Um, and that is what it meant to become a free from colonies, from the uh, Western colonies. And uh, nowadays, when we talk about uh, self-determination, uh, it, 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 it in, at certain, uh, in certain instances, at certain instances, that, can, that principle is used and can be used, but it cannot go beyond, it cannot go uh, contradict to territorial integrity principle. And uh, when we're talking about the self-determination, we have to look at the lawful execution of that right, not just uh, saying that, okay, I'm independent and I uh, 
uh, I, I, I voted for my independence without the people who live, uh, some of the people who lived in that territory. Well, I'm talking about the Azerbaijanis of Nagorno-Karabakh, who did, who was not, who were not part of that decision of Nagorno-Karabakh region to become independent, and that right was executed illegally, uh, given the constitution of the USSR. Uh, if we can uh, enter to, into that discussion, I'm I'm, I'm happy to uh, to uh, to share more. But I uh, but but I believe um, it as my uh, Benjamin rightly mentioned, um, we have that question of trust in each other. Uh, when I say uh, when I sincerely believe that uh, we can coexist together. But um, uh, Benjamin he says that he uh, they have some uh, preoccupations, some uh, um, uh, doubts about the sincerity that we're uh, we're offering them autonomy to the Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, and it goes uh, the other way around uh, when we say that we're committed to peace talks, and they say they're committed to peace talks, and then we start negotiating for 26 years, we don't see any resolve. And how can we have that trust on the other party's uh, sincerity and uh, the the nobleness of it, of its intentions? So okay, uh, maybe that's that's where Europe way. can come in and maybe try to reconcile these issues. Do you have the same view, Benjamin? What's your take uh, on this? And is it possible to reconcile? I'm asking you both from the perspective of the Balkans, uh, uh, but also Caucasus as well. Uh, first of all, I believe that there are no one-size-fits-all solutions. So okay. I don't think that it arises to mix all conflicts in post, not even post-Soviet Eurasia, but post-socialist Eurasia, like uh, situation in Balkans, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, Nagorno-Karabakh Republic. It's not a right way to mix all in one thing and try to find uh, one solution or one size people solution. Each conflict. Uh, has its history, each conflict has its peculiarities, and also each conflict has its peculiarities within international and also within Soviet Union law. I definitely can argue that the independence of Nagorno-Karabakh Republic, which by the way was declared in September 1991, before dissolution of the Soviet Union, it was done fully in compliance with Soviet Union laws and also in compliance with international laws, but definitely I understand that if we go into the legal debates, we will need maybe for another one hour podcast minimum to uh, present our arguments. And I don't think that it's maybe the right way and definitely we do not have the time. But again, I would like to stress that I don't think it's a right approach to say, okay, if something happens in Balkans, it means okay. that the same thing should happen in South Caucasus. Okay. So again, no one size fits all solution. Thank you very much. Uh, I need to conclude this uh, podcast episode, even though it was my great pleasure to talk to the two of you. We haven't maybe reached uh, the same conclusions, but it is important that we have actually uh, talked to each other openly, and I really appreciate the two of you for sharing the floor with me. I would also like to ask you, do you have anything else to add before we conclude this episode that we haven't touched upon? Any last words? I can, I'd like to add a few words uh, and uh, I'd just like to, uh, my uh, Armenian colleague to know that um, sometimes uh, I, I hear on, uh, on our, I see on Armenian media that uh, people in Armenia believe 
that there is a lot of hatred to our uh, Armenians and uh, we uh, just uh, want to come and kill everyone. That's not the case. Uh, we, uh, there, I mean, as uh, the ethnic group or as a neighbor, I don't think we have a hatred towards Armenia. And uh, it's it based on the fact that our territory is occupied and we have to address that. And if we don't address that, so for 26 years we see that it, hasn't, it wasn't addressed, we come to the situation like this. So if uh, we see a reciprocity in that desire to solve the problem, I think we can get there. Okay, Benjamin, do you have any last remarks? Um, a few words. I hope that uh, hostilities launched by Azerbaijan will be stopped and our neighbor will understand that the only solution is possible through negotiations. And yes, negotiations is a tough thing. We have conflicts which have been negotiated for decades. So you cannot say, okay, I want a negotiation, but I want to come to solution within one year or even within 10 years. And also we may discuss why the negotiations have been stopped. My understanding is that they have been stalled because uh, because of these modern principles or the phase solution approach, which has been elaborated since mid 2000s. This is my understanding that this is a key reason of this stallment of this stall of the negotiations. This is a, a phased approach solution, which is being discussed. So, if we will be able to overcome this phased approach uh, solution and to think about new possibilities or new framework for negotiations. <coughs> negotiations will be much more successful. And my sincere hope is that peace, or at least ceasefire, will come back to our region as soon as possible. Okay, I do think it's really important that we're ending this podcast with a positive note, and that is that we all think that there, the conflict should be over as soon as possible. So with this message, uh, I thank you once again. I thank also listeners for tuning in. And I really hope that we'll all stay in touch and stay in, stay in touch with uh, future podcast episodes from the European Policy Center. Thank you and best regards. Thank you.